they called the police about 40 minutes after the occupation. And what, what triggered that? Well, because the owner here thinks that he owns this building. But I asked him, if you can show me the bill of sale from the Iroquois Confederacy, I'll, I'll agree to it to being private property. But he refuses to show me the bill of sale. And therefore, this is a federal government building. And so we're in our sovereign right to come here and, and, and occupy if, we're, if the needs of our people aren't being met, especially by the people who claim that they're negotiating on our behalf. So, Jane, thanks for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Sapria. We've got uh, quite the show lined up. It's a smorgasbord, really, of, uh, <laughs> of, of political topics in the last week. We're going to get into whether someone can be both a conservative and a feminist, for one. Mm-hmm. We're going to riff on Duffy just a little bit. Yeah, because, you know, he was cleared of all 31 charges. And more importantly, we're also going to hear from some people who are upset about the suicide crisis in Ottawa-Piscat. Our producer, Kevin Sexton, went to the offices of the Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada to speak to protesters there who are occupying the office in Toronto, as well as several other cities in Canada. I really want to hear from the protesters on the ground because the media coverage of this has been abysmal. I'm Sabrina Devetti. I'm Jane Litvinenko. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is supported by Audible.com. If you go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. One book that I've been meaning to read and would love to get on Audible is Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. Yeah, that's been on my to-read list for some time now. Since it came out. Yeah. Since it came out. So maybe now that it's beautiful outside and I can actually walk to work, I can dedicate some time to listening to Bad Feminist. Go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now for a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. So, Jane, last week, conservative MP Michelle Rempel wrote a piece for the National Post called Confront Your Sexism. Mm -hmm. And whereas, you know, it definitely sparked a dialogue on on Twitter and, and people were talking about it, there was some backlash from the left. Mm-hmm. Some great feminist infighting there. Indeed. So I thought it was brave is sort of the word I'm looking for here. Is that really the well, word you're it, looking for? To be a female MP at all and to actually come out against sexism, regardless of your party, I think you're going to face backlash from the old white dudes in your party, no matter which party you belong to. If uh, not brave, I it's mean, something. You can't... Slightly gutsy, I suppose. Slightly gutsy. There slightly you go. Slightly gutsy. That's, 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 that's something. So I'm of two minds about this because I wholeheartedly support her points about the crap that she has to put up with, you know, the dismissive sexism, the sometimes grabby men, the things that a lot of women have to deal with day to day. And her point was that, well, one of her many points was that sexism is a men's problem Mm -hmm. because they're the ones being horribly sexist. (laughs) That's placing a lot more faith in men than I'm willing to. But it was an interesting article to read. And I think that a lot of things she said echoed with uh, women who also experience this type of thing, especially on the Hill, as we heard in our last episode. Right. Or in any sort of male dominated field. Um, We all know about it, but I do think it's cathartic to read somebody else in a position of power, especially somebody like Michelle Rempel, who isn't exactly a wallflower and who is very outspoken to still be 
condescended upon in that way. Right. And even when she was on this program, if I remember correctly, she spoke a lot about her having to deal with Twitter trolls and the sexism she experiences online as well. And I don't want to minimize those experiences because, frankly, it sucks to have to deal with that. So, Jane, one of the uh, pushback voices that we were hearing on the mm-hmm. Michelle Rempel article was Sarah Bueller, who co-wrote an article for Rabble called Don't Be Fooled by Michelle Rempel's Sudden Conversion to Feminism. And we caught up with her in Vancouver. Does Michelle Rempel being aware of feminism make up for the fact that her government's inaction on missing and murdered Indigenous women is just an endless source of harm to women in general? So it's more about who Rempel considers a woman who she's fighting for and how that extends. So in the piece, it's herself and her staff and then sort of everybody else. White feminism, I guess, is what you're sort of getting at, right? I mean, you you alluded (laughs) to that a little bit. It's white feminism. It's also liberal feminism, I think is maybe a better word. So I I guess my question is, how could she have addressed sexism and the sort of misogyny that she faces on the Hill in a way that would have been acceptable to progressives? Or does she not have a, a leg to stand on because of her party's record? Well, again, I'd like to point back that like a lot of progressives shared it sort of uncritically. Right. So I think that there's that the, the lack of debate and the lack of spaces we have for critical engagement with this stuff means that, that people seize on this to be very excited that it's happening at all. It's funny because she contextualizes it as much as written about sexism that's so systemic that it's referred to as every day. And that's a really interesting sentence because... You know, there's a website, Everyday Sexism, women talking about their individual experiences um, with sexism, you know, sexualist harassment at work, being patted on the butt. Like, I can't imagine it would be any different on Parliament Hill with a bunch of powerful old white men, frankly. But the fact that she contextualizes, it's so systemic, but it really, really leaves out the institutionalized nature of it. And because she is a fully paid up member of the institutions that work on women's bodies, I, I can't see how she wouldn't have said what she said. But I think it really does point to the fact that it's missing a key part of the analysis. But I, I guess, what would you have liked to see in that op-ed in which you and your co-author would have been a little bit more satisfied? I'm not sure, politically speaking, if there's anything that she would be able to say in public that would make this meaningful for every woman, essentially. It's interesting and it's important for a very sort of small silo of women. And you can extrapolate from that, and many have. And the fact, of course, that it's a conservative saying this maybe means that it has, you know, it can reach women who aren't going to go near feminism with a 10-foot pole otherwise. See, but I actually see that as a good thing. So, you know, and and I agree with you that that, that I don't think she has a sort of leeway that somebody from another party, let's say the, you know, the NDP would have, especially when talking about systemic issues or being a feminist in general, simply because just traditionally conservatives seem to be a little bit more reticent to the, you know, dreaded F word here. So I guess that's why I'm a little bit sympathetic to her, only because A, you don't know what goes behind closed caucus doors. You don't really know who's fighting for what in terms of bills or what they should be voting on. But also, I just feel like she has, in some ways, an even more uphill of of a battle because of the way it's just so entrenched on the right, more so than the left. Well, that's true. But people do have responsibility for the choices they make in terms of their political ideology. So the fact that she's chosen 
to join a party. And she, let's not mix words here, she gets a lot out of being the young, attractive conservative. It's um, There's a phenomenon in the States uh, where... Yeah, but is that really fair to say that she's attractive so it would be better if she was an uggo and, <laughs> and be calling for feminism? Well, it's just interesting. It's it, There's a phenomenon in the States. I'm not sure if you all have seen it, but it's like the Fox News anchors. There's a very specific type of woman who is allowed to be at the forefront for conservative thought. And you really... Yeah, do like the Megyn Kellys. So like... Exactly. So, you know, every woman, of course, under patriarchy, chooses how they're going to engage with it and how their personal power is going to interact with systemic power and what they give up. So, you know, when you But should we separate her political ideology from what she experiences in the workplace? Uh, The policies that she creates are sort of beside the point to the day-to-day experience that she goes through? Do you think so? You know, the point I was I was, we were talking about earlier is that isn't there a certain baseline level that like all women can sort of come together and say, fuck, yeah, we all have to deal with this shit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we do. But we cannot detach this op-ed from actions. We cannot detach it from the fact that she has been a cabinet member since 2011. Before she joined the party, 12 out of 16 status of women offices were closed. Like there's no argument that you're going into this not understanding what the status of feminism is within the conservative party. If she and I were working in the same office and any of this stuff happened, I would be the first one there with her. And if she wants to have a rally or do any of this stuff, I think, you know, a cross section of political ideology to stand up and say enough of this crap is great. But I also am super mindful that you cannot erase your political history with the national post mea culpa in the middle of a leadership race and not expect to be challenged on the underlying motivations for that. And I think it is dangerous for us to accept that on its face, because then what we do is we open a space where the language of feminism, the language of progressivism, and we've seen this all over, we've seen it in the States, if you can deploy that, you have basically made toothless a lot of the criticism against you. Which means now Michelle Rempel can be the standard bearer in the leadership race. So symbolic action, awesome, talking to the public, great. In the meantime, is the Conservative Party going to make any difference in its policies? We have Kelly Leach doing sort of the same thing. She's super upset now about the racism of the barbaric cultural practices hotline. And she's really sad. I like to refer to it as a snoop on your brown neighbor's tip line, personally. <laughs> you know, right? So... There's a leadership race, Harper is gone, and now we get this sort of rending of garments in public. Oh, can you believe this happens in the Conservative... Yes! Yes, we can believe it happens in the Conservative Party! We've been watching! Where the hell were you? And so at some point, one has to say, you know, at what point does your membership in this party not negate the fact that, like, it's great you're saying stuff... The fact that feminist discussion has penetrated into the National Post in a non-sarcastic way, revolutionary. Like, I'm into it. It's amazing. (laughs) I think, like, if we had a graph of where we are in terms of, you know, widespread analysis and public consciousness raising, that is fantastic. But, man, they know that also. Like, this is also a calculated attempt to go up against Trudeau because he he can hit his mark like crazy he's a feminist and it's 2015 and gender parity in cabinet. But like the Beaverton said the other day, it's Canada's first feminist arms dealer. 
Like, that's great. You're a feminist. Slap it on any label. What the hell are you actually doing? Sarah Bueller co-wrote an article for Rabble called Don't Be Fooled by Michelle Rempel's Sudden Conversion to Feminism. Thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you all so much for having me. So, Jane, some big political news this past week. Oh, yeah. Three years, four years in the making, actually. Yeah. Uh, Mike Duffy off on all charges. Yeah. 31 of them. The senator Chatelaine called hugely huggable in 1987. I don't know if that was a bad year for men in general in 1987 (laughs) or what. But yeah, so this is really interesting because, you know, there were criminal charges, obviously. So the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. The judge went through great pains to let people know that he did not think Duffy acted with any sort of malice. Mm -hmm. Uh, He called him Mm -hmm. a credible witness. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people now are saying, you know, the the Globe essentially had a headline that said something to the effect of him being vindicated. I just like to point out not being found criminally responsible for something isn't exactly the same as being vindicated. It doesn't (laughs) necessarily mean you are acting with the utmost ethics and and morals involved. Um, But this does, you know, point to the larger issue is, is what does he do now? What does Duffy do now? Does he return back to the Senate? That's one heck of an awkward situation, I would imagine. I mean, maybe he'll actually visit PEI now. Maybe. <laughs> and maybe he could be in those tourism ads. Maybe maybe that's it. Maybe he just transitions now to bring tourism dollars to PEI. <laughs> I do want to pick up on what you said about the verdict and the ruling. Um, so he was found not cleared of all 31 charges, was it? Yeah, not guilty. Yeah. Not guilty. But in the ruling, uh, which the judge read out loud, he talked a lot about the role of the PMO, the prime minister's office, in orchestrating this entire deal, scandal mess thing. So a lot of the things that the judge said in the ruling about the prime minister's office don't necessarily translate into charges against anybody else. So the question is, why would he go to such great pains to talk about the PMO's role in the entire scandal? And I think to me, it's that despite Duffy being cleared of all charges and things sort of coming to halt, the judge prevented them to a certain degree from saving their reputations. You think he had that much uh, foresight, I guess? So you think this was completely done, you know, knowingly? I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that's it. Because, you know, the next step for any public figure who's undergone a scandal is to fix their reputation. And rebuild their image. Yeah, totally. And I think the ruling acknowledged the fact that that's what's going to happen and maybe try to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've, I've read in by multiple, you know, legal aficionados about talking about whether or not now Duffy actually has recourse for any sort of civil suit against m- members within the PMO that he felt disparaged him either in the press or in the public or what have you. And it's interesting because I think a lot of what was said is actually privileged. So I, I don't think there's a lot that can be done there. But, you know, Duffy certainly has an uphill battle, as do a lot of the other senators that were mired in, in sort of expected scandals. Duffy, of course, was probably the most publicized. With his testimony, he definitely played to the public's heartstrings of, oh, what was being me. Told what to do. I was being told what to do. I yeah. was being manipulated. I was in a situation that I couldn't get out of. But it's also to your point, Jade, remember you're talking about your uncle who was <laughs> saying like, well, what, what the heck's the big deal? Like, right. $90,000 was paid back and taxpayer money wasn't really wasted in this instance. So like, where's the scandal? Right. And I think a lot of people felt that way. This has been dragged out over the course of four years to the point where the public is just too tired to even care anymore. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And it's funny because the trial started during the onset of this last federal election. And a lot of people were like, oh, this is the first nail in Stephen Harper's coffin. I would really like to see some polling as to how many people actually were paying attention and even noted that the trial was going on. Yeah, it's great that at the beginning, this was like, this is going to bring down Harper. And now Harper is probably just eating some popcorn and watching Netflix and not even we, Well, caring. we do know he loves Netflix. We do know he yes, loves Netflix. So that is true. Yeah. <laughs> not caring about what the public thinks. So, Jane, I don't think it's any surprise to either of us or to most people that media doesn't always do a good job of reporting on Indigenous issues in this country. No. Yeah. Well, exactly. (laughs) So one thing that struck me that didn't really get a whole lot of media attention is that over the last couple of weeks, protesters were living inside the offices of Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. The occupation started in Toronto on April 14th and spread to cities across the country. Protesters set up inside or outside government buildings in Regina, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Calgary, Gatineau, and Quebec City. And our producer, Kevin Sexton, went down to the Toronto office to talk to them. Kevin, take us to the scene. What did you see? Okay. Who did you talk to? So I showed up last Thursday, which was the last day of the occupation in Toronto. Uh, Toronto was actually the ground zero occupation. At the time, they had been upstairs for eight days living inside this office. The building was on lockdown. So there were, you know, signs all over it saying, you know, Toronto in solidarity with youth across Turtle Island and having demands of what the youth in Attawapiskat need. There was, you know, security guards at the door turning people away. You know, I got there. I talked to some of the people who were supporting them. There were indigenous people there. There were white people. There were people from Black Lives Matter. And then later on, when the protesters came down, I chatted with some of them as well. How and why did this all go down? Basically, people were upset about the suicide crisis in Attawapiskat. Which is more than understandable, given the gravity of the situation. Yeah, yeah. So there were 11 suicide attempts in one day there. Um, reports of over 100 suicide attempts and at least one death since last September. There were some People who said, okay, I'm sick of just hearing about this on the radio. I want to go do something about it. So they met at uh, at Tim Horton, said, what can we do? And they decided to go down to the INAC office, uh, Indigenous Northern Affairs Canada in Toronto. So a big group of them got together and went down to the INAC office. And according to a couple of the protesters, the staff there would not talk to them. So this guy, Gary Wasikisik, who we actually heard in the Black Lives Matter documentary that Desmond did a few weeks ago, apparently he started chanting, you walk away, we stay. And then the police got called in, and then the original organizer, Catherine, explained what happened next in a speech later on. A native liaison from the Toronto police, she came in and she spoke with um, someone briefly. Then she went into the office and she was talking to the um, INAC staff, and it was quite clear that they did not want to speak to us. And finally, the regional director came out. And she stated that they were working at the round table to address this issue, but she didn't want to answer her questions. And then she left the room. So that was the moment they decided they were not leaving. When they showed up, they weren't planning to stay for eight days. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this is really just spur of the moment activism at its best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the guys who was up there for the full time, Davine Calfchild, here's how he explained how that sort of snowballed. Well, when we first went in there, I mean, it was uh, very interesting because we had no plan on staying for eight days. We only planned on being there for at least about a couple hours. And this is my third occupation at INAC. The first occupation I did was back in 2011 when they first announced their housing crisis. We took over INAC for a couple hours. 
And then I came back three years ago with my aunt and another guy over the suicide thing in Nascondaga. And, uh, of course, we were escorted out, and that was just a couple of hours. But this, this one specifically here was... Uh, not something that I had really expected and because the lady had walked out and handled the situation inappropriate, you know, this is what she got, a nationwide uprising. So INAC says that they actually did offer uh, on three occasions for a senior official to meet with one of the representatives from the group and they were declined. Protesters say they just weren't answering our questions. So what were the demands, Kevin? What did the occupiers ask for? Basically, they just wanted the government to listen to the youth in Ottawa-Piscat. They wanted to see some long-term solutions to some of the problems that Indigenous societies are facing. So here's what Devine said about that. Well, I want the government to understand that they need to take responsibility and and less talk and quit putting a Band-Aid solution on the problem. I just mentioned to you that I took over INAC five years ago for the housing crisis. And even to this day in 2016, five years later, the housing situation is no much better than it was five years ago. And the problem of it is, is that these Canadian politicians go up there for the photo op and it makes it sound like they're doing something, but it's just a temporary band-aid solution because they're not living up there. They don't have to face the conditions of, of what the people on the sovereign nation of Attawapiskat are facing. So it's easy for them to just go in and go out. And, uh, you know, I've heard from the youth how they don't like that. These politicians just showing up and, uh, you know, coming up there because there's really no change. And... We want these young people to know that we're here for their best interest and we want what they want. And they have to be the background and the foundation behind the things that they're speaking. We want the young people of Attawapiskat to have a voice and not be lied to and not making promises that you can't keep. So there was a lot of anger from the protesters, from the Understandably. Support- mm-hmm. Yeah, from yeah. the supporters outside, generally about the housing crisis in Alpscat, about the lack of clean drinking water. All of these things, just people kind of saying, like, how can people be living like this in Canada? Why isn't anything being done? I talked to a couple who came down to support the rally. The wife, Elizabeth, was a residential school survivor who had gone through some troubles and had gone through some healing in her life. She and her husband, Dave, had been up to Alpscat many times and were recently there for a funeral. They know young people who have taken their own lives. They heard about this protest and came down just to show their support. So they told me a little bit about what they saw when they were up in Attawapiskat. Their water's no good. There's no water over there. They only open it every now and then for shower. So what do they do for water? I guess they get uh, bottled waters from uh, the agency or ban offices. I don't know what they do from health centers. And that's mostly from the people that's working that can afford the a bottle of water, everything is so expensive up there. It's crazy, crazy, crazy expensive. A case of pop is uh, about $18. You know, those three packs, bikes of milk, they're about uh, $14. And one time we went visiting there. I sent him to the store to pick me up uh, laundry soap. He comes back, he says, I brought this a shampoo. I said, I don't need shampoo. I said, I need to do laundry. He said, I w- I'm not going to buy a $39 uh, laundry soap. Lots of laundry soap like this. $39. It's crazy. It's very hard to live over there. It's very expensive. I mean, that's insane. $39 that's... for, like, I can't even... Oh, my God. Kevin, were you able to garner some reaction to the money that the Ontario government has pledged? For those who don't know, the Ontario government pledged up to $2 million for a youth centre and mental health workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I asked Dave about that, the guy we just heard from. Here's what he said. Well, they say they're going to. And if they do, it, it takes a long time. You know, it's a long process. And they need it now, not five years, ten years from now. You know, 
they make promises and that they can't keep. That's how we see it with the government, you know, as Aboriginal people. You know. So there was that lack of trust that was a common theme I was hearing there at the rally. Dave did say he expected Trudeau to keep his word in trying to improve relations with Indigenous people. But there was a larger issue of sovereignty that kept coming up. We heard that a little bit from Devine earlier, this idea of why are we forced to come down to this office, this INAC office, to talk to these people to get resources for... Our own land. Our own land, yeah. yeah, And they're saying the government's up there, uh, up in the north, extracting resources, making all this money. So here's Devine talking a little bit about that. Justin Trudeau thinks he's he's the Prime Minister of Canada, but according to the great law, his government is null and void here on the Iroquois homeland, and I'm pretty sure on other other sovereign nations too, because our laws are the supreme laws. And we want to be respected and have a final say on our future development, whether it be economic, social. The ring of fire is what they're really pushing because they want to steal the land. And it's funny because before this occupation, they just about a couple days before, they found a $35 million carat diamond, which is about the size of a nickel. So how come you're giving these sovereign nations $2 million bucks if you just fucking found a $35 million diamond the size of a nickel? And a lot of people just wanted Trudeau to go spend some time up in Ottawa-Piscat. The government did send people up there. Uh, Carolyn Bennett, who is the Minister of Indigenous, Indigenous and Northern. Northern Affairs, went up there, along with Charlie Angus, who is the MP for the region and the MDP's critic for Indigenous and Northern Affairs. So they did go up there and they did speak to the youth. And the youth in Ottawa-Piscat said they were satisfied with that meeting, which is why this whole occupation ended. But a lot of people said that's not enough. Trudeau needs to go up there to understand. Here's what Elizabeth said about that, the one we heard from earlier. The Prime Minister should go there and visit, and he would see himself what it's like over there. They won't believe us if you just tell them like what I'm doing right now. But if they go over there and visit like they do in Japan and all other places, and when something happens, that's the other thing that makes me mad sometimes. They send so many million dollars over there, bring refugees. What about Aboriginals? Like They need help too. You know, we all need help. I'm not prejudiced or anything, but it's just I see my reserve and I'm watching this news and seeing this and that. Why can't they help them? That sentiment, we're sending foreign aid and bringing refugees, that's something I hear from a lot of Canadians that are not just of Indigenous background, but Mm -hmm. saying that the government should and can do more, in Mm -hmm. fact. She wasn't the only one that said that to me. Yeah, so it seems to be a common thread, and I feel like it's something we should all probably be pushing our government to do. So, as I said, Carolyn Bennett and uh, Charlie Angus went up there and they did commit to setting up a youth advisory committee. And Trudeau has committed to work with provinces and territories to try to improve mental health services. So the government is trying to do things to improve this situation. I just want to play one final thing that Devine said about Trudeau that I think summarized a lot of the anger that I heard on the ground there. And then one, one thing that really bothers me about Justin Trudeau is how the, the nation of Sutna, which is on the Blackfoot territory, gave him a headdress. He does not deserve to wear that headdress. He's not Ongwe Owe, and he's not holding a Shoni, and uh, he has to understand that he has no right to wear that headdress. And especially the way he handled this situation in Ottawapiskat, if I was in Ottawa right now, I'd take it right off his head. You know, I think those are all very powerful messages and and I think it's fine that Trudeau has already made some commitments but we can't act like mental issues are isolated from the larger problem of 
these communities of the prices for food, of the accessibility to running water. Yeah, exactly that. We we know what the common underlying problems are, and presumably they're fixable, and there should be actionable steps that can be taken at least in the immediate or short term. And we we should all be pressuring our government to do more on this. Absolutely. The fact that there's a limited commitment to all of this and Ottawa Piscat is being singled out, but Ottawa Piscat is not the only place where this is happening. So why aren't we and the government standing up to say this is not acceptable in a wealthy country that can afford to treat its citizens well, instead of, you know, like it was said, like a Band-Aid solution. That's our show for this week. You can follow us on Facebook by just searching Canada Land Commons or Twitter by doing the same thing. You all know how to Google. Big ups to our producer this week, Kevin Sexton. And that great music you heard was produced by Nathan Burley. You could find us at CanadaLandShow.com. And Supriya, where can people find you? Uh, they can tweet me at Supriya Devetti. You can tweet me, but probably shouldn't. I'm at JaneLYTV. If you like the show, and we know you do, then support us. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of Shortcuts is going to be out on Thursday, and the next episode of Commons is going to be out next Tuesday. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.